Hello, and welcome from the Renaissance Baptist Church of Brooklyn in Ontario, Canada. Join us this week as Pastor John Blackman shares from the book of 1 Corinthians. I imagine uh, many of us uh, in the room this morning have uh, done various kinds of um, personality profile tests, like the, uh, such as the Myers-Briggs personality uh, inventory, I think it's called. That, that particular test now is kind of passe. People aren't really using it anymore. It's kind of considered uh, not, but it's started in 1962, so that test is as old as I am. Uh, I learned uh, from uh, some looking around this week that Psychology Today has something now called the Big Five Personality Test. And uh, when I looked into that a little bit, People aren't all that crazy about that test because it actually identifies some negative personality traits, which uh, this particular generation doesn't like any uh, negative feedback. Uh, there's things, something called the Enneagram, which seems to be big with uh, Harry Potter-leaning uh, mystics. There's one called the four-color personality test, and you can take that test and find out if you're an orange or gold, a green or a blue I don't think Justine would need to waste time testing her kids on that one. We know they'd all be come out as orange. Um, then there's something called the Goldman's EQ test. And I imagine that's the favorite test of someone named Mr. Goldman because he probably makes a few pennies off every test score and report given. And I may sound a little cynical about all of them. Uh, you know, I imagine they probably have their places. And, and let's be fair, people in human resources, they have mortgages to pay too. I'm poking at them a little bit this morning and making fun of them because for many people who have parachuted into the 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that we're going to look at today or there's passages in Ephesians and other places where Paul talks about these things called spiritual gifts, people kind of parachute in and they see a list and they see these various names to different kinds of gifts and then there's always seemed to have been a temptation to uh, create detailed definitions of what every one of these labels actually mean and what that specific gift actually is. Um, you know, if you do a lot of uh, study into the whole idea, there's, there's a lot of um, kind of guessing and conjecture and a lot of subjective kind of ideas need to be used to even figure out a one-paragraph description of what some of these gifts really meant in Paul's mind. Um, and then all that material is compiled into surveys with multiple choice questions, and then a person answers a survey to get a score, and in this scenario, scores are given, and, uh, you know, after you get this score, you'll see a little report that says, you know, your dominant spiritual gift is this, and your secondary ones might be this or that, uh, and if you're really gifted, you might have three or four on that list. Back in the day, you couldn't avoid having to go through that experience in a classic uh, old Bible college curriculum. Um, you know, I, when I think back on it, it's amazing how many 19-year-olds who had never preached a sermon in their life or even taught a toddler Sunday school class would score super high in preaching and teaching. Um, somebody who'd never led a person across the street might end up being certified as if they were just hardwired for leadership. And then the next unofficial class, uh, unofficial step after that survey results and everybody had their papers would be out in the hallway, well, what did you get? All the comparisons. And you can imagine in that kind of a context, which gifts would be the highly prized ones. You know, I can imagine some poor freshman looking and saying, oh, no, my number one gift is helps. I'm going to have all the lousy jobs the rest of my life. You know, and everybody kind of looking at each other and comparing one another and their gifts and all of that kind of stuff. 
I'm not sure how any 18-year-old guy in 1982 could have the gift of wisdom, but there seemed to have been a veritable epidemic of wisdom every time those tests came out among people that young. Uh, If you were reading ahead and you knew that we were coming to 1 Corinthians 12 and you thought you were going to walk out of here this morning knowing exactly what your spiritual gift is, I'm sorry to disappoint you. In 1 Corinthians, it's a long letter written to a very dynamic church. But Paul's starting a new section in our series, and it starts this morning. He says, and now concerning, um, in various languages, uh, in various phrases, in various translations. In this long letter, he's writing it to a divided, dysfunctional congregation. They might be dynamic, but they're also very divided and dysfunctional. And they were in danger as a congregation of missing out on their true calling as a community of faith, why God brought them together in the first place. They were at risk of living a life that was completely out of sync with their identity in Christ. We've already seen from our series through the fall and and, uh, this winter that they had faulty definitions of what real Christian strength was and and even what real weakness was. They had their eyes on the wrong identifiers in how they were to understand who or what a spiritual person really was. And in the section that we're going to look at today, um, even why someone was genuinely a spiritual person in the first place. Before I even read chapter 12, I want to highlight some key words, phrases. Right from the get-go, most translations in the very first verse in this chapter kind of fill in Um, uh, a subject matter of where you're going because it basically, most of our translations say, and now concerning spiritual gifts. But actually, if you look back, I have a slide here from something called Young's Literal Translation. We could have that first verse just say, uh, now about spiritual things and concerning the spiritual things, brethren, I do not wish you to be ignorant. We're not really sure until about... Verse 4 is going to talk about actual spiritual gifts and bring that title in, but, but Paul's just writing about generally the whole idea of spiritual things. And, it, and this passage is meant to help us figure out there's a lot of spiritual people, a lot of spiritual things, there's a lot of spiritual experiences all over the world and all over this town of Corinth. But what are specifically Christian ones? Um, these people in this congregation had a serious problem of one-upmanship. We've seen that already in our series all through the, as we've been looking at it. You know, looking down on each other, looking down on each other's favorite teachers, who Paul told us that early on in the series, those different teachers, they weren't in competition with one another. They weren't trying to one-up one another. But people were kind of dividing and trying to evaluate people and all of these kinds of things. They, uh, they looked down on each other's various practice of freedom in some twisted examples we've looked at, they even looked down on other people for not participating in things that they really sh- none of them should have been participating in. Um, they also things like categories like rich, poor, slave, free; those were seeping into the way they considered their brothers and sisters in the congregation, and that should never have kind of come in. They should have all only seen each other as brothers and sisters in Christ in a covenant community family. They were also especially enamored culturally. This is something we looked at way back at the beginning of the series, towards speaking and teaching and various kinds of knowledge. That was a big deal for them. We might have a a celebrity-obsessed culture or an athlete-obsessed culture. They had a kind of guru, teacher, um, speaker, 
um, that was kind of who really mattered in their culture. So as a result, the various ways that a person might contribute or serve within the Christian community, that became a way for them to discriminate against one another rather than assimilate. So they were discriminating rather than assimilating. They were they were thinking about these gifts and things that somebody might contribute as a way to build up the status of the individual rather than build up the strength of the congregation. They were lording it over one another rather than using these gifts to display who the Lord over really was. So I'm going to, uh, I'm going to, when I read the chapter, uh, I'm going to read it in such a way so that uh, this whole dominant picture of communion kind of comes out why it's so important for understanding the why of spiritual gifts. We get so fixated on the what. What are each of these gifts? And we tend to miss the why. Why does God enable people in a spiritual way to do anything? So I'm going to try to emphasize the unity side of the equation uh, when I read it. Um, So no matter what the actual definition of each gift might be, the purpose of them will be very clear. Before I read verses 1 to 3, I want you to scan those if you have your Bible with you. Because one of the things I want to point out is that spiritual phenomenon was very normal in their culture. You know, so we get into talking, well, what is this gift of tongues that he talks about and this gift of prophecy and all of these things? Uh, You know, what were those and how did they work out? It's not as if this Christian church was the only one having these kind of ecstatic experiences in their worship services. They would have been happening in all kinds of pagan temples as well. Um, you know, you think about in our own culture. People in a domed stadium at a major sports event, they have some kind of a spiritual experience. That's part of the draw. That's how they sell so many tickets. People go and they're moved in some way, and they become very attracted to that. It becomes a very big part of their life. They might be at an amazing musical concert and have a spiritual experience, so to speak. Men in dingy bars with brass rails likely have a spiritual experience, and they're moved along by the experience. So when you get down to verse 3, this whole line about Jesus is Lord, Jesus is cursed, it's not just a doctrinal statement. It's also a definition of the kind of spiritual experience that a person is really given a spiritual gift for. It's possible that every one of these gifts, like I said, were were well known in many of the pagan temples and worship um, services. So just because you had some kind of ecstatic experience didn't mean or prove that it was from God's Holy Spirit. That was true then, and and it's true now as well. Um, Verse 3 is also a purpose statement for any of the spiritual gifts. If the gift that you're thinking about or using is legit— It's going to be used according to plan. They're actually going to shine a light on what a big deal Jesus really is, not what a big deal the gifted person really is. So if you think about gifted and how we use that gifted language and gifted ideas, we really usually use it to build up and make super special the gifted person. And Paul's kind of pushing back against that whole thing in this entire chapter. So let me read the passage. I'm going to read the whole passage. Now, dear brothers and sisters, regarding your questions about the special abilities the Spirit gives, they must have asked Paul about these. He says, I don't want you to misunderstand this. You know that when you were still pagans, you were led astray and swept along. That language means that moved. You know, that's this whole idea that other ecstatic spiritual experiences 
Um, you know, they were probably having all kinds of experiences that moved them in a certain way. Uh, but that, that doesn't really prove the source of them. Yeah. You were moved in worshiping speechless idols. So I want you to know that no one speaking by the Spirit of God will curse Jesus. This is that important verse 3 I was talking about. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same Spirit is the source of them all. There are different kinds of service, but we serve the same Lord. God works in different ways, but is the same God who does the work in all of us. A spiritual gift gift is given to each of us so that we can help each other. To one person, the Spirit gives the ability to give wise advice. To another, the same Spirit gives a message of special knowledge. The same Spirit gives great faith to another, and to someone else, the one Spirit gives the gift of healing. He gives one person the power to perform miracles, and another the ability to prophesy. He gives someone else the ability to discern whether a message is from the Spirit of God or from another spirit. Still another person is given the ability to speak in unknown languages, while another is given the ability to interpret what's being said. It is the one and only Spirit who distributes all these gifts. He alone decides which gift each person should have. The human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, and some are free, but we've all been baptized into one body by one Spirit, and we all share the same Spirit. Yes, the body has many different parts, not just one part. If the foot says, I'm not part of the body because I'm not a hand, that doesn't make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, I'm not part of the body because I'm not an eye, would that make it any less a part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, how would you hear? Or if your whole body were an ear, how would you smell anything? But our bodies have many parts, and God has put each part just where he wants it. How strange a body would be if it had only one part. Yes, there are many parts, but only one body. The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. In fact, some parts of the body that seem weakest and least important are actually the most necessary. And the parts we regard as less honorable are those we clothe with the greatest care. So we carefully protect those parts that should not be seen, while the more honorable parts do not require this special care. So God has put the body together such that extra honor and care are given to those parts that have less dignity. This makes for harmony among the members so that all the members care for each other. If one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. And if one part is honored, all the parts are glad. All of you together are Christ's body, and each of you is a part of it. Here are some of the parts God has appointed for the church. First, our apostles, second, our prophets, third, our teachers, then those who do miracles, those who have the gift of healing, those who can help others, those who have the gift of leadership, those who speak in unknown languages. Are we all apostles? Are we all prophets? Are we all teachers? Do we all have the power to do miracles? Do we all have the gift of healing? Do we all have the ability to speak in unknown languages? Do we all have the ability to interpret unknown languages? Of course not. 
So you should earnestly desire the most helpful gifts. That, that you is most likely use. It's written to an entire church. You as a church, you should be desiring that your church body would have the most helpful gifts within it. But now let me show you a way of life that is best of all, and that would lead into chapter 13's love chapter. Let me cheat ahead and read a quick line from chapter 14 so you know where chapter 12 and 13 are aiming. You think about this whole section we just started as three kind of movements. There's the chapter 12 we just read. Then there's the famous love chapter where Paul just slips that in so we have something to read at weddings. No, no, it's really part of the same discussion of spiritual gifts. And then verse 14 is going to go back to spiritual gifts. And now everything that Paul said in verse 12 filtered through the filter of this love chapter are then re-examined and re, uh, re-examined in chapter fourteen. Um, it it, it uh, it's funny to even think that Paul has to solve a problem of people being proud and making a pecking order over spiritual gifts, because gifts by de- by definition are something that someone just gave you. <laughs> Somebody gave you this gift. How does that make you better than anyone else that you were given this gift? Especially when it's from the same God, the same Spirit, for the purpose of building unity and and movement in the body. Um, Take a look at chapter 14. I said I was going to cheat ahead. Chapter 1440. When we're using this gift, he's finally going to wrap it up in a couple chapters and say, but be sure that everything is done properly and in order. When we read that, uh, I don't know what you think of when you think, okay, so your church service and everything that you do together as a church is supposed to be done properly and in order. I kind of think of like a button-down, uh, you know, stuffy old, uh, pres- you know, British Presbyterian church 50 years ago or something where everything's super organized and in order and everybody's all buttoned down and very calm and nothing happens out of the ordinary. I don't think that's what he's really talking about here. Uh, if these gifts are used properly, they're going to be used in a loving way. By the time Paul says that in verse 14, chapter 14, he's basically said, here's these spiritual gifts and why we have them. Here's the love chapter. Now, if your gifts are used properly, they're going to be used in a loving way. Uh, if, uh, if they're going to be used uh, properly, they're going to highlight the lordship of Christ. We're going to come back to that. Um, in a Philippians chapter 2 kind of way. If they're, if they're used properly, they're going to be used by people that do not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but as Jesus has described, is taking on the form of a servant, humbling himself. Uh, Philippians 2 talks about don't consider yourself more highly than you ought to. Consider one another better than yourself. Don't just look out for your own personal interests, but the interest of others. If we're using these gifts properly, they're going to fit into those kinds of definitions. And if you look at chapter 14, verse 25, um, Paul kind of slips this line in about uh, a spiritual gift being used and unbelievers observing it in a service. And when they do, they will fall to their knees and worship God, declaring God is truly here among you. So if these gifts are being used properly and in order, it's going to make God more visible. It's not going to elevate the platform and the fame and the the attraction to the person with the gift. It's going to make a big deal out of Jesus' lordship and God's presence. Um, I would say even before we look at chapter 13 next week, which many of you have heard so many times, that if you want to spot a spiritual person, 
You're going you're gonna to spot them by your love. When I was a kid, we ground a praise chorus into the ground based on Jesus' words, of, and they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love, and they'll know that we are Christians by our love. We could say, and they'll know that you're a spiritual person by your love. That, that's how you would stand out. Here they are trying to uh, out-gift one another, and Paul's kind of saying, you should be trying to out-love one another. Whatever these labels mean, um, if we get back to our passage in uh, verses 4, 5, and 6, Paul's pretty clear about uh, where they come from. Um, he's, about, he's very clear about uh, where they come from and, uh, and what they are from three angles. First of all, he basically says these gifts are bestowed freely in verse 4 by the Spirit. You know, we would say by his grace. A lot of commentators call spiritual gifts grace gifts. That Back to that idea that, that they're from somebody. They're a gift. They're just given by this one spirit. They're from the spirit or they're spirit sourced. It, secondly, in verse 5, they're intended to be used in Christ-like, in a Christ-like attitude of service because they're from the same Lord. That same Lord that I talked about from Philippians 2 a minute ago who, who humbled himself took on the form of a servant. So these gifts are for Christ's glory and uh, to, to glorify Christ. And, and thirdly, in verse 6, they're, they're, working, they're a result of the working in their lives by the power of God, the same God at work in all of them. These gifts are God power. I, I don't want you to get uh, too distracted. And something that I also want to go back on is I'm afraid that I've uh, I skipped over it is this whole idea from chapter 3. So I want you to know that no one speaking by the Spirit of God will curse Jesus, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. What's all that about? Again, that's not just a doctrinal statement. That's the purpose of what a spiritual gift is given for, the fact that Jesus is Lord. If you're losing, using your spiritual gift in the right way, people will say, Jesus is Lord. That same word Lord could be uh, translated as Messiah. No one that, that, uh, that oh no, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself, sorry. Um, let's, let's get back to the notes, John. All right. Don't get too distracted by a label like miraculous powers. You know, that's when this, there, there was this gift of, of miraculous powers. What's that all about? Miracle in, in modern language, is, it can get really misleading. You know, we tend to use it in a, in a really kind of uh, dualistic way so that, you know, we get an infection and then we spike a fever. So we just go to the pharmacist and we get a prescription and uh, that makes the fever go away. We're good. Boom. Took care of it. No miracle required, just a regular old. But then I fall off my roof, now I'm in the miracle zone because there's nothing at the pharmacy that's going to fix it. And now we get really serious and we start praying because now I need a miracle. Sometimes we use miracle almost in a, in a phrase like magic. Uh, in the biblical mindset, God is always at work in his creation. Listen to some words from Psalm 104 that talk about miraculous events and think about how commonplace they are and realize these people didn't have this division between what requires a miracle and what requires God's help and what's just something that we just do and, and doesn't need anything, any kind of spiritual enabling. Listen to Psalm 104. 
Um, All creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time. So you're driving down Highway 12, you see some deer out in the field eating. Psalm 104 talks about that. That's, that's God feeding those animals at the proper time in a biblical mindset. Um, when you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they're satisfied with good things. When you hide their, your face, they're terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. Here's a more biblical worldview. We think about needing a miracle for our very survival. Everybody take a breath in. Just go, breathe out. We do that all the time. In a biblical mindset, we're dependent upon God for the, for the air we breathe. That's an example of God working all the time. When God stops working, you stop working. We're going to expire someday when God stops um, animating our mortal lives here on earth. Um, When you send your spirit, they're created, and you renew the face of the ground. A psalm like that is just one example of that our view should really be that everything done down to the face of the ground is an act of God, despite what insurance companies might use that phrase for. I say all of that just to highlight uh, that arguments about the role of miraculous gifts and their relevance in the world we live in today, you have to be careful before you get into an argument about those kinds of things that you're not actually just talking about categories that the Bible doesn't even think exists. Because God is always at work. What we might call a miracle is not magic. It's just the sovereign God acting in an unusual way from his normal working. And oh, by the way, it's just unusual for us and not from him. So when we see those things happen, and we say miracle, we're just saying mighty act of God, who who can do all kinds of things in all kinds of ways, and he does, he's always working. Uh, By the time we get to the end of verse 6, we can draw a clearer picture of genuine Christian um, spirituality. Uh, We could describe them like this. One author I read this week said, the Corinthians were in danger of looking at spirituality, because I think that's what this chapter is really about. You know, what is the spiritual life, and what is the spiritual vibrancy of a congregation? How does a group of people kind of mesh together, spiritually speaking? You know, and what does that look like, and what's that all about? This author says, they were in danger of looking at spirituality as an area of personal growth and experience. And Paul wants them to see it as the place where the one true God known in the ways he outlines in verses 4 to 6, equips people to advance his kingdom in the face of principalities and powers of the world. That's a pretty big quote I've got there. I wanted to write it down because it made me think of a couple of things that, uh, again, to repeat, God gives us gifts and abilities that help us together to highlight Jesus' rule. When there start to be power struggles within a congregation over who's doing what and who's getting the attention or who's gifted, who's more significant than anybody else in a church, something something doesn't smell right already. I'm going to come back to that later. But secondly, that quote reminds us that there are spiritual forces in resistance to that happening. Jesus' sovereignty and God's control and Jesus' kingship being displayed to the world. There are spiritual forces against that becoming a reality. If, if there weren't spiritual forces that were against that very thing happening in a congregation, we wouldn't need spiritual gifts. 
We just need to try harder. Read more books. Take a few more courses. But there are spiritual entities that are in resistance to that. Um, when, I, when I say that, though, that these are spiritual gifts, that I don't want to lead you astray and make you think that somebody with the gift of teaching or knowledge or this one that's called prophecy that we, we may in future messages start unpacking, it doesn't mean that they just get to travel on autopilot now. They don't ever need to read a book or think or take a class because they've got the gift of teaching. They've got the gift of knowledge. It's like turning on a tap. It just pours out of them. That's not what I mean. We, we still can use conventional means and normal paths to fan into flames a gift given by God. Let's jump down to verse 12 because this body picture is so important. This this whole idea of the body of Christ. So it is with Christ. This is where I got sidetracked earlier. I think the Apostle Paul would have loved uh, a phrase that we throw around sometimes lately called every member ministry. Um, that, was a big, that was a big thing that a lot of churches were writing books about it and there were seminars about every member ministry. We really need the focus of every member ministry. You know what's really sad? Is that that was considered like a new thing that we need to try. Because Paul's already talking about that in the first century. So, so when we use that kind of label, we're not talking about something new. We're talking about going back to the way things should have been from the beginning. And, and, he's, and he says that that name Christ, that's the one that, that could just as well be written as Messiah. So when he says, so it is with Christ, we could just as well have it say, so it is with Messiah. That's the name for the great ruler. Membership has its giftedness. He's talking about members, membership in Messiah. And in that concept of membership, it owes so much of its use to this whole very image of body life right here in 1 Corinthians. You know, sadly in our day, membership kind of gets flattened out as, well, membership, that's just the people who belong. Or that's just a way to identify who's in and who's out. If we scrape off our over-familiarity with the word membership, we see that it's a body idea. It's not just a random idea. A, a human being is a body. It's, they're not this separate person, as we talk about on Sunday nights in our group. They're not this thing that drives around in a machine that we call the body or a vehicle. They're an embodied person. And, and he's saying here an incredibly radical idea that Jesus, the Messiah, is an embodied person. And we've become members of the body of Messiah. To quote the same author again, he says, the church is to be the place where we together learn how to be God's genuinely human beings, worshiping and serving him by reflecting his image in the world. Think of that. Contrast that idea or, or add it to the famous creation story that we talk about so often. That God creates the world, then he gets these, these, these real rulers, regents, this man and woman, and together they're going to reflect the image of God to the world. Scott just talked today about idols and, and not creating anything that's meant to be an image of God that you're bow down, bowing down to and worshiping. God creates these uh, beings to reflect his image to the world. Now, Paul's saying, as a church, that's our, together, we're now like the Adam and Eve of the kingdom in this time. Um, 
It's incredible. I'm going to come back to a discussion about what these gifts are. We might be posting some articles or sending you some links. But verse 14 basically kind of highlights that everyone matters because every body is made up of many parts, and that includes the body of Christ. So I got a question for you. Think about it this way. Do you, now I'm talking about you as a person, an individual, do you depend on your church for anything significant? Is there anything really significant that you depend on your church for? You know, I was thinking about, you know, our bodies and what we depend on different parts of our body for. I just, I used, when I was preparing this sermon this week, I used my fingers, you know, I used my eyes, you know, reading books and reading articles, reading my Bible. Uh, I used some of my brain. I used all of these different things in preparing this sermon. Um, and and I, I depend on them. Now, you know, I could lose a hand. Um, I could even probably lose my vision. And I, there would be a lot of workarounds that I would have to do. Eventually, I know because there are blind people and people that don't have use of their hands that preach amazing sermons. But it would be a lot for me to learn how to do that because I depend on these parts of my body to do this thing. What do you depend on the church for? Uh, what do you depend on um, on your church to accomplish? Can you make a direct connection from that thing, that significant thing in your life that you depend on your church? Can you connect that directly to Jesus' lordship? <laughs> I think a lot of times we become dissatisfied with church life because it's not giving us this thing or this thing or another thing. And sometimes we've drifted a really far from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. That by the Spirit of God, only by the Spirit of God, anyone can say Jesus is Lord. So is your dream for Renaissance that together these people would really be proclaiming Jesus as Lord. If it's, that's, that's something I can't do by myself. If, it, if it's not for my church family, I, I, I don't know how I would ever display Jesus as the center of all life, how I would ever proclaim that Jesus is Lord. Uh, is that your desire that people would recognize and display more and more that Jesus is Lord? Can your church depend on you for anything significant? Is, is your involvement in a local church helping people, helping other people to be able to visualize that Jesus is Lord? He's the center of all life. I was listening to a sports announcer, an analyst uh, that I admire on a podcast this week. We'll call her Doris Burke because that's her name. And she was talking about a team that she was going to be uh, doing the play-by-play. -play. She's a really good uh, analyst and play-by-play uh, -play announcer. And she was going to be doing a, a game for this particular team that in this last schedule year she hadn't actually been at any of their games yet so she normally covers these teams and she was finally going to see this new team that's kind of ascending and she said you know it's there's there's you can't beat i've seen them on tv but there's something about being there at the sidelines watching the game and she said something about uh, she said you really have to see them in that context where you can see their body language not just the ones she kind of went on, I'm paraphrasing now, not just the ones with the ball in their hands or the five players on the floor, but the whole bench and the coaching staff 
and be able to see that and see the way they're interacting with one another. That's what she meant mostly by their body language to kind of get an idea what she thinks the chances and possibilities are for this team or what kind of a team they really are. And I thought about that, spiritual gifts. They would be the God-given ability to make a congregation's body language say, Jesus is Lord. So then when you looked at the way that congregation interacted with one another and moved around, you would say, wow, that's an amazing God. That God is in charge. That God is Lord. His kingdom is the kingdom that they really serve. Um, that congregation is saying Jesus is Lord. Again, I haven't explained how miracles differ from prophecy or how tongues may be a heavenly language or an ability to speak in a language other than the one you know or how someone might have an ability to explain what all of that means. I do know this from that list and the things Paul wrote that a typical worship service in the first century seemed to require a lot of manpower. There are a whole lot of people involved. It even involved a lot of women power because back a couple of chapters, we found out when women are prophesying, here's the kind of headgear they should have on. So there's, there's that angle. Um, the reason I haven't spent a whole lot of time describing them is because in different letters to different churches, there are different lists and different gifts described. I, I don't think that the New Testament has an exhausted list. Think about yourself. Those one or two things that you're really good at, they might be your gifts. Don't despise them just because you can't find them on a list in any of Paul's letters to the New Testament. Some of these are clearly important gifts that every church should have, but it would be kind of crazy to think that there aren't all kinds of abilities and different ways that people are gifted that are important for a church the way God imagines. Try this instead. Those things that you're actually good at how could you imagine them being used to help proclaim Jesus' lordship and rule? How could they be used to encourage and serve a congregation trying to do that? You know, we're always looking for people that we need to serve as teachers, as organizers, encouragers, and sometimes people say, well, I don't think that's my gift. And we've all known gifted teachers, so we kind of feel like they were born that way, and they just woke up when they were five years old, and they said, yeah, I'm a gifted teacher. Um, I'm pretty sure that most of those gifted teachers that you can imagine, they don't even really realize they're gifted teachers. And even if they do realize they're gifted teachers, I'm pretty sure they were doing that teaching for quite a long time before they ever kind of reached this self-idea that they're a gifted teacher. Next Wednesday, I'll be in a room Wednesday, after, Wednesday morning, actually, with a few other pastors grilling a guy again who's uh, wanting to have his credentials recognized as a fellowship baptist pastor so it's like an ordination review and uh, every time we do that to a candidate we ask about three things we we grill him on as he produces a paper that describe his conversion how he came to faith in christ his call you know what what it's built on that he thinks that he is called to be a pastor, and then his doctrinal statement, and we kind of go through all of those. That call part in the middle, that's where it gets a little weird sometimes because people have a strange idea about calling, um, what it means to be called to full-time ministry. Some people imagine it's like the boy Samuel in the home of Eli, and uh, you just get this magical voice one night that says, John Blackman, and uh, who is that? And you, I go to my mother's room, Mom, you called me? No back to bed, you know, and then, oh, 
finally some, oh, that's God calling, and then God's going to, oh, John, you're going to be a pastor someday. Some people think it's like that. Um, sometimes people write, some of our heroes write things like, if you can imagine doing anything else than being a pastor, that's what you should do. You should, you should never attempt this unless you absolutely know you're called. That, that might be there, but here's the thing. You know what I've never seen in that room when we get to examining a person and him thinking about being a pastor? I've never been in a room, at least not yet, I hope I never will, where that guy that's talking about his calling has never yet preached a sermon or a number of sermons, that they haven't yet kind of served in or led any kind of ministry at a church. They've pretty much all done so. And and in fact, ordinations, when when we do ordinations, me and my little band of friends, uh, uh, that, that conversation on Wednesday, we're actually only assisting one local church who've decided, you know what, uh, we've got this guy, and we've observed his ministry, and uh, we've uh, observed some things in his life, and we want to call him to the pastoral ministry, and we'd just like you to assist us in that conversation, but that local church is actually going to ordain that person to become a pastor. Why did I tell all that? Not so you know how to become a pastor and what the process is, but think of the involvement of a local congregation in helping that guy determine that maybe his gift is being a shepherd, a shepherd teacher. All kinds of people through his life have said, you know, if his name's Dave, we'll call him Dave because that's his name. You know, Dave, when you taught that class, that was really good. Hey, I noticed when, have you ever thought of trying to preach, you know, and somebody probably taught him how to preach a sermon or he went off to a Bible college and, and even there had things affirmed by people. Conversations, a body. That's how he found his gift. We're just being asked to help a congregation recognize those things. People all around you will be needed to identify many of these gifts, but they'll happen in the natural flow of doing ministry together. Don't ever try to figure out your spiritual gift from a chair, from a recliner. You find them out while you're in motion. Uh, Are you gifted in building connectedness in the Christian sense of ministry of hospitality and teaching God's truth in helping physical sufferers to persevere? Are you gifted in the ability to visit with people and have conversations with them that strengthen their faith? You're probably going to try doing those things over and over again many times before you ever even realize, you know what? I think this might be my gift. And other people will recognize that as well. I don't have a three-step plan for Renaissance that's like a human resources seminar where I can give you a random questionnaire and then based on your score, plug you into various jobs that we have here. Sometimes a ministry like our nursery right now has to kind of adapt because of lack of workers. I don't think you're going to find diapers on any of the lists in the New Testament for a spiritual gift. But That might be helps. That might be service. It's uh, all kinds of things. Teaching, serving, cleaning, renovating, encouraging, praying. What do you depend on Renaissance Baptist Church for? What does it depend on you for? How can we together declare that Jesus is Lord? If we pursue that as our aim, verse 3 of this chapter, then this idea of spiritual gifts, we won't need to obsess over what we don't have or do have as a congregation because it seems from Paul's description here, that God will supply everything we need. 
His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness, to quote another apostle. Next week, we're going to think about the most significant agreement, uh, ingredient, I should say, in truly Christian spirituality. The thing that really will be the most important identifier in our body language that the world would look at. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we uh, today um, again remind ourselves that your son, Jesus Christ, is the greatest gift that could ever have been given. You gave him at such a great price to yourself that it would only make sense that you desire all men and women throughout the world to know about this gift. It would make sense that you would enable us to be able to... um, do our part in what you've called us to, to proclaim that. So, Lord, I pray that you would give us a great hunger for making much out of your Son, Jesus Christ, and that we would eagerly pursue the gifts that are helpful for doing that. We ask this in Jesus' name. Thanks again for joining us. For more information, please visit brooklynrbc.ca. The link is also in our bio. On behalf of the Renaissance Baptist Church of Brooklyn, we pray you have a blessed week.